0: You can open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The study of 1 Corinthians, I think, is a particularly interesting section to study. Uh, It's a great book to study. uh, So much of it is misunderstood. And I think these three chapters of 1 Corinthians 8 through 10... Uh, fall into that category i suppose if i were to pass out some paper to you and say tell me what the big idea is of first corinthians 8 through 10 my guess is that you would all say meat sacrifice to idols would probably be the grand majority answer And I would tell you, wrong. It's not what it is about. But it is interesting that sometimes we have been given a lens to particular text, and by having that lens, it causes us to not really study it. Because if these three chapters are about meat sacrifice to idols... Well, we don't have that problem today. We are all perfectly capable of going to a grocery store and buying our meat. And we do not have to go to a temple and worry that it had been sacrificed to some pagan God. And so these three chapters are completely irrelevant. And we have really no idea why God saved them over time because it was something that was going to phase out over a couple hundred years anyway. But that's not what this section is about at all. I would also push the misunderstanding a little bit further that if the answer to this problem that Paul is going to address is simply that idols are nothing at all and it is okay to eat, then why do you need three chapters to simply say idols are nothing at all, don't worry about me, eat whatever you like? That's not the answer or solution that Paul gives to this text. And yet often that's also put forward as the meaning of it. In fact, I want to put some caution forward before we study this. Sometimes what happens is we read these three chapters under the lens of Romans 14. Well, what we have is there's the weak and there's the strong. And so we all just need to bear with all the weak and all that. And I want us to recognize that that's not the answer Paul gives in this text either. And so Romans 14 is not at play. So what I am doing as I introduce this lesson is asking you to completely flush everything you probably have ever heard about these three chapters and start fresh. And let's look at what exactly is Paul dealing with? What exactly is the unique problem that the Corinthians have? And then the unique way that he addresses and gives a solution to that. And by doing so, we're going to see, I think, some very important principles that God is giving to the Corinthian church that is also valuable to us. As we read chapter 8 tonight, I really tried to figure out some way to do all these three chapters. and You know me, no. That's not going to happen. But we really, if you got those chapter breaks out of the way, all three of these chapters need to be held together. And in each of the lessons, I plan to kind of give you some threads to hold those three chapters in place to help. But as we read chapter 8, See if you can pick up on what the real issue is that Paul is addressing. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God... He is known by God. Therefore, as to eating meat offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are, may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and the one Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Lest I make my brother stumble. All right, let's look at the heart of the matter of what the Apostle Paul is dealing with. Now, one of the challenges in reading this chapter is the original Greek does not have quotation marks to tell you when he is citing what the Corinthians are saying and when he stops citing what they're saying and what his answer is. And so you probably could sit next to your neighbor and compare your Bibles and you will notice different places where there are quotations and different places where there are not. And what I'm going to encourage you to think about is what sounds like what the Corinthians were saying and what sounds like Paul's response for us to be able to discern what seems to be what the Corinthians are putting forward as their argument and what does it sound like Then Paul is is rebutting. I think it's pretty interesting that you kind of read through this and I think you can get a sense of it, but sometimes the quotes and lack of quotations can 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 blur that a little bit in the first three verses you get the principle the basic idea of what Paul is dealing with most everybody concurs that that first sentence is dealing with a quotation concerning these foods offered to idols and here's what the Corinthians are saying we don't know that we possess knowledge we have knowledge we, we, we know about idols and we know that they're nothing and so we have a complete understanding seems to be the point that they are putting forward. They are justifying their behavior on the basis of the knowledge that they possess. Thus you will notice how Paul responds to that at the end of verse 1, knowledge puffs up But love builds up. You're going around saying, Hey, we have knowledge. We know. We understand what we are doing. We have an understanding about these things. We have a faith about these things. And so we're completely aware of what we are doing. And notice how Paul just simply addresses that and says, Do you know what that kind of knowledge does? It makes you arrogant. You believing that you have knowledge, you know something in practice often makes us proud. I know I have this certain knowledge. And so therefore, you all don't understand, but I do. And that's what he's kind of just laying out before them is knowledge cannot be the only factor On an issue. Notice that Paul's response is not just going to be simply be, well, your knowledge is wrong. That's actually in chapter 10. But right now, he's just going to tell them, that doesn't matter. I don't care if you have knowledge, I don't care if you think you have figured it out. In fact, perhaps my favorite verse of these three chapters is verse 2 is if you think you know something, you don't know anything. I love that line. You think you've got it all figured out? You definitely don't have it all figured out if you think you've got it figured out. And I think the spiritually mature understand that. I think we would all raise our hand and go, yep, the more that I come to know God, the more I realize I know absolutely nothing. (laughs) When I was young and immature, I thought I had it all figured out. I had all the issues nailed down, and it was all black and white and clear. And I got, okay, I know. And then the more you know, the more you go, I don't know. <laughs> and that's what I think Paul is trying to drive at them there. You think you've got this all figured out, and you imagine that you have this knowledge. You don't know as you want to know. You don't have the right kind of knowledge, To spiritually mature, understand the limitations of that knowledge and do not go around going, well, I know. I have knowledge. Because that's what the Corinthians are doing. We have full understanding on this issue about idols and we know that they're nothing. And so whatever we're doing, which we haven't seen him discuss yet, is okay because we know. And Paul says, your knowledge is terrible. <laughs> you think you know, but you do not have the knowledge that you ought to have. In fact, it is an important point that is being driven at right here, is that it is pride that says, I know. Pride is what says, I've got it all figured out. I know something. And I want us to recognize that that is spiritually disastrous. To be able to say, well, I've got this all figured out. I've got it all worked out. Is extremely dangerous. Because what Paul is going to come in and do for three chapters, this very lengthy section, is completely knock them over in their knowledge on three separate arguments. We'll talk about that a little later. The arrogance that we put ourselves forward and say, well, I've got it figured out. I've got the answers. I know on this issue. And Paul says, if that's where you are on this, you don't know as you ought to know. In fact, notice verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Notice how he shifts it. It's not how much knowledge do you have and those are the ones who are known by God. He goes, I don't care that you have all that knowledge. It is a love of God. Those are the people who are known by God. Knowledge alone is disastrous. Knowledge must be mixed with the love of God. Without the love of God, your knowledge is arrogance. And thus he says those who love God, they're the ones who are known by God. Not you, Corinthians, who are going around saying, well, we know. We have, we've got understanding. We have spiritual maturity. We have spiritual clarity. He says, you don't know as you ought to know. And this now he leads into dealing with essentially what the problem is. Though not expressly stated quite yet, he starts moving into it. Verse 4. Therefore, as to eating the food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. This appears also to be the Corinthian motto. As we have knowledge and here's what we know. We know idols are nothing. And we know there's only the true and living God. We, we know that those false gods are nothing. We, we don't believe in those pagan idols. And we don't think there's anything behind it. We know that there is only one God. We know that an idol is nothing. We have knowledge. And therefore, notice again, it is justifying the position that they're putting forward. And listen to Paul in, in verse 5 as he responds to that when he says... For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, and indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, for whom whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Notice Paul agrees. Yes, an idol is nothing. Yes, there is one God. But watch verse 7. However, not all Christians possess that knowledge. See, you think you know something and you're acting on that knowledge. But he says, there are these other Christians who are not in the same boat with you. They don't know that. In fact, notice how it plays out in verse 7. some through their former association with idols, eat the food is really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. You know that an idol is nothing. You know that this is just pomp and circumstance and ceremony and there's nothing behind the pagan sacrifices that are going on. But that doesn't mean that other Christians have that knowledge. And he says, why? They came out of that system. They participated in those pagan feasts and pagan sacrifices and in that idolatrous worship. And here now they're becoming a Christian. They're coming to the Lord and they're seeing you participate in that and they are confused by that. In fact, notice he says it even stronger than just puzzled by it. He says at the end of verse 7 there that they are having their conscience defiled. Their knowledge doesn't mean just because they know that what they're doing is acceptable. Because there are other Christians and their faith is being destroyed by that. In fact, as we go through chapter 8, I want you to notice how many times he speaks to the destruction of their faith that is occurring. And the first usage is here when he calls it uh, defiling. Now I want to talk about that just for a minute. Because we live in a time right now where when... The scriptures speak of there being an offense that is so different than how we use it today. When we talk about being offended, what we mean is, I don't like what you said. (laughs) That is not a biblical definition of being offended. Today, if you say something that I don't like, I don't personally agree with, think that you're crazy about, I am so offended. That's not what God's talking about. When you read of an offense or a defiling like you have here, and he will use stumbling block in a moment, you are causing a person to sin. Very important that we understand that. The actions of the Corinthians and what they are saying that they are able to do with their knowledge is causing other Christians to go and sin. That is what a stumbling block offense defiling is all about. You cause someone to go sin, not that they're upset, not that they're disappointed, not because something like that. It is a picture of they go and sin. And that's what he says right here is the problem with your knowledge is that not everybody possesses that. What they see you doing is causing them to go sin. Now, verse 8 is particularly interesting. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do Huge debate. I'll leave it to you to decide. It's like 50-50 down the middle. Is that the Corinthian motto? Or is that what Paul is saying? And they go back and forth and back and forth on which way should we understand that? I am going to submit to you that this is part of the Corinthian motto because of what Paul says after that. Because he's not going to say that food's okay no matter what. That's not going to be his conclusion in these three chapters in the slightest. So I'm going to say that I think what they are doing is saying, it's fine, food does not bring us under judgment before God. Now, the ESV and perhaps your translation as well says, food does not commend us to God. Okay, fair enough. The word is a fairly strong word though. It is a word that was used most frequently for a legal standing before someone. A good example of it is Romans 14 verse 10 where that word is used. And it's translated as standing before the judgment seat of God. It is a legal standing. And it seems that the point that is being made here is whether we eat these things that have been offered to idols or not does not draw us any closer or further to God. It does not draw us closer to a judgment from God. It's fun, And Paul may be in agreement with that, but notice what he goes on saying in verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Notice again an idea of destroying faith. What you are doing is causing the Corinthians, these other Christians, a problem. And the problem is very much laid out now directly in verse 10. Watch what the issue truly is. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, you see what they were doing? Now you get a full picture of what the meat sacrifice to idols issue is. They are going into the idol's temple and that is where the meat was. In fact, archaeologically they have found there are all kinds of dining rooms in the temple's of those pagan and idolatrous worship. There'd be just tables and couches all over the place. And in the middle was where you would have all of the meat with the idol there, and that's where the meat was cooked. It's almost like Texas de Brazil without all the idolatry. Uh, That's how it was set up. It was just the meat was in the middle. The couches and the tables are all around. That's it. And so here's what's being laid out. They see you going into the temple and he says, aren't they encouraged them to go do that too? See, what they're watching is to see the Corinthian is saying, we know that idols are nothing. We know that there's only one God. And we know that it's just food. Food doesn't commend us to God, doesn't draw us near to God, doesn't put us before the judgment seat of God. doesn't matter at all. Food is food. And Paul goes, Okay, fine for the moment, though verse ten, he will I mean chapter ten he will blow that up. He says, Here's the problem. They see you go into the temple, and what do they think you're doing? Worshipping idols. That's the problem. And that's what he lays out in verse 10. Is his conscience If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. Because of verse 7. Their former association with idols. They used to participate in those things. And now they're extracting themselves from idolatrous worship. And here they watch Christian so and so go into the idol's temple. And they're going wait a minute. I thought we weren't allowed to participate in that worship. And so they're knowledge then and their faith is being destroyed that's what verse 11 goes on to say as he says not only in verse 10 that you have encouraged them to do this act verse 11 by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed the brother whom Christ died notice how the intensity first we use the word defiled then we went to stumbling block now he just simply says he is his knowledge his destroyed so it's not just oh I'm kind of bothered by this it's wrecking faith it is destroying the faith of these christians thus in verse 12 you are sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak and in doing so then you are sinning against christ and thus he would makes this conclusion in verse 13 If my eating food is going to cause somebody to fall away, to go in and sin, I would never do that. I would never do something that would cause another person to sin. Now, let me take a step back out here for a minute and zoom out to be able to get a scope of what these three chapters are about. Because if we sit only here in chapter eight, we can really miss and not see what this is doing. When you get to chapter 10, it's really interesting how Paul is breaking down the answer. Because it is interesting in my mind I would think if you're going to deal With the problem of these Christians Going into idols temples Sitting down at the dining couches And eating as part of the Pagan worship that is going on And saying in your mind Well it's just an idol, it's nothing real And it's just meat and it's no big deal Then why wouldn't you just go straight to chapter 10 And say It's idolatry and sin I'm just going to Help you can mentally think, where, where does chapter 10 go? Chapter 10 starts off with the idolatry of the Israelites in the wilderness and then pushes in and talking about the whole chapter is about what you are doing is idolatry. What you're doing is wrong. We cannot have the cup of blessing and the cup of curses. We cannot eat with Belial and then eat with God. We can't have fellowship with both. He's saying you can't do what you're doing, but notice. Here's what I think is so fascinating. Notice that Paul doesn't start there. Paul ends there. Paul does not start with what you are doing as Corinthians with your knowledge and going into those temples is dead out sin. He ends there. He starts with, don't you see that you're wrecking the faith of other Christians? It's interesting that he starts with love. Before he even unfolds why this is idolatry, he lays out you're causing people to sin and that ought to be enough. Your behavior causing other people to sin, your knowledge so that other people then walk into sin should be enough to end the story. That should be all that is necessary. And so that's what chapter 8 is about. Chapter 9, he'll say, I don't care if you think you have a right to do something, you don't. Chapter 10, he's going to say, it's sin anyway, don't do it. But we'll get there. (laughs) But to feel the flow of what he does, I think is very important to the structure of what he starts with. And he does not just simply start out and say, it's idolatry, it's wrong, let's move on. There is to be a heart that is to exist for other Christians an awareness of their faith such that this first section as he unfolds the problem of going into the temples and eating the meats that are there you would recognize that you are harming and shipwrecking the faith of other Christians now I want to make two big points tonight to talk about and then the lesson will be yours number one In dealing with some of these really big ideas, the first real big idea is that Paul is addressing that the knowledge that we have must not cause another person to sin. The knowledge that we have is not to be the primary ground for our Christian behavior. I think we would all agree that throughout chapter 8, pretty much Paul agrees with the things the Corinthians are saying. Sure, it is just food. Sure, an idol is nothing. Yes, there is nothing behind it. You're right. There only is one God. And then Paul goes, so what? That's not everything. Your knowledge is not everything to the issue. And just because I know something doesn't mean I can impose it and destroy the faith of another person. Paul knows food is nothing. And yet he concludes by saying, if that causes somebody to sin, I wouldn't touch it. I will never eat meat again lest it make my brother stumble. That's a very important principle that though I would have a knowledge of some kind of thing, if it were to cause damage to the faith of another person, I would be more concerned about that than my knowledge. Loving others has to be the ground for what we say and what we do. Not just simply our knowledge. Not just simply what we know. I would imagine you can think of in any of your experiences and other places you've been or stories that you have heard, how many times somebody has possessed knowledge and destroyed the faith of other Christians in a given church. Well, we know this and have wrecked a congregation have wrecked individuals' lives, wrecked their faith, caused them to weaken in the faith. That happens far more often than I care to even think about. Because what we know and we put forward issues, I go on gospel meetings and I even see it happen in front of my eyes over issues that are argued over and how we do particular acts of worship and things like that. You just see this tension unfolding as people are dealing with this uncomfortable thing. Notice what Paul is saying here. You can know all you want to know, but you can't destroy the faith of another person. You cannot wreck another person's faith. Which leads then to the other big idea here is not only about our knowledge that our love for others must be the ground for what we do but i submit to you there's even a bigger idea and the big idea is this our faith cannot be separated from our behavior our faith cannot be separated by our behavior do you see what the corinthians were doing They were doing something and they said, well, we have this faith in our heart for one thing and that makes this action over here okay. So since we believe that these things are all nothing, that makes it acceptable for us to go into the idol's temple and to fully participate in those things because we know an idol is nothing and there is only one God. So it's fine. Your actions have to reflect the beliefs you have. Let me illustrate it another way to get to the idea. When we had our lectureship, we remember we had Jeff Wilson going through the book of Daniel. You might remember the three friends that Daniel had, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they are told, when the trumpet sounds, you need to bow down. To this big, enormous statue. Why don't they just bow down and in their mind go, Well, we know it's just an idol and there's only one God? Because it says to everybody else, You're worshiping the idol. Your actions have to reflect the faith you possess. You can't just simply say in your heart, well, I really know this is nothing, so it's okay, and so I'll go ahead and do this. If that were acceptable, then these three guys should have done that rather than be tossed into a fiery furnace. Actions must also be reflective of what we believe. Sometimes the question is asked, well, if a persecution arose, and they said, you need to renounce your faith, Or you're going to die. The question sometimes is asked. Well couldn't we just renounce our faith. And say within our hearts. You know that that's not what we really believe. No. You can't. Because faith and action have to work together. You can't do one thing. And believe something different. In fact we have a word for that. That's hypocrisy right. Faith. Faith drives action action cannot be separated from faith and this is the point that he's getting at about these Corinthians you can't go into this activity which is idolatrous and say well it's okay because we know we know that an idol is nothing we know it's just food we know that there's only one God we cannot communicate something to people that would cause them to sin but in our minds we sit back and go well we know it's okay There's not a hidden faith that we can possess to make something that looks sinful, not be sinful. I'll use a modern day example. Boy and girl are living together, but we're not having sex. Don't care. (laughs) Doesn't matter. You can play all your mental gymnastics. Your appearance, your declaration is you're together and that's what's going on. You can't go into the idol's temple and go, oh, well, we don't really believe that. We're not really doing that. But to everybody else, you're destroying their faith. They're looking at it and going, well, that must be okay then for a Christian to do. You can't have that. You cannot do something, though you have faith and knowledge that communicates to some other Christian that your behavior that is sinful is okay. You might go, well, I'm not doing anything. Well, they think you are, and now they're sinning because of it. That's what's at stake here in what they're talking about, is that there is no sinful acts that can be performed with righteous knowledge. This is a, such a big deal that Paul is dealing with here in, in this section. And unfortunately, it is a section that is frequently skipped over. But what we must understand is that we must love the faith of other people to such a degree, that we want to do whatever it would take to not have their faith destroyed. Remember, Jesus was really serious about that. Listen to Matthew 18.5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. This chapter is essentially an exposition of that truth. You cannot do something in your knowledge and in your belief that would cause another person to go out and sin. And I think it is so interesting that that really becomes the picture of the art of loving one another. That Paul does not just want to simply say, just don't do that. It's a sin. Let's get it over with. But he says, do you understand that you're supposed to have a heart for people? You're supposed to have a heart for the souls and the faith of others. To such an extent that even if you possess a knowledge. Your desire with that knowledge is not to harm the faith of another person. That I would not want to cause their faith to be wrecked. I would not want to cause them to sin. And so though I have knowledge. I will be careful. And not do what I think is acceptable. Because I could cause someone to sin. That's his starting point. In a few weeks, we'll come to chapter 9. And we'll see the next layer that Paul puts upon this. I'd encourage you over the next few weeks to reread these three chapters as much as you can and ignore the big 8, the big 9, and the big 10 chapter breaks and just feel the flow and watch how the argument moves to the final conclusion of, you know, it's, it's sin. <laughs> what you're doing is sin at the end of the day. But before I tell you that, you need to love the faith of God. We'll sing a song, and we invite you to come to Jesus tonight. We invite you to love the Lord your God, and I I love verse 3. Those who love God are known by God. If you will turn your life to Him and follow Him and serve Him with all of your heart, you will have a relationship with Him. He will know you, and you can then enjoy all the benefits of being a child of His. We We encourage you to do that tonight. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?